It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about soldiers and sex workers, two ancient trades intrinsically linked, especially during wartime. And although If people were created equally, a price would never be put on a person's life. We clearly value those who fight over those who fuck. Murder Mile is researched using authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 139, The Fall of Peggy Richards. Today, I'm standing on Waterloo Bridge between WC2 and SE1 one road southeast of the strangled baby of Maria Poulton, two streets south of the botched robbery of James Forbes McAllen, three feet west of the assault on David Morley, and close to the drowning of Annie Frimley. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Waterloo Bridge, also known as New Waterloo Bridge, carries the A301 over the River Thames, between Waterloo on the south bank and the Strand on the north. Fashioned in a box-girder design, it's made of Portland stone and is laid over five concrete piles which are sunk into the river's mud flats. Like many of London's bridges, it's often ignored as just a means of connection between the pricey pubs of Covent Garden, the arty twaddle of Festival Hall, the IMAX, where numpties pay twice the price to see the same film, only bigger. A small fortune to go wee on the world's slowest Ferris wheel. Or for footy louts to drunkenly grunt their way towards Waterloo Station as they tunelessly massacre every single note. Built as a replacement 
For John Rennie's defunct Strand Bridge, New Waterloo Bridge is often referred to as the Ladies' Bridge. Constructed between 1938 and 1945, with all eligible men enlisted to fight in the war, Lind and Co. mostly hired female contractors to complete the work, whether welders, scaffolders or stonemasons. Skilled trades, which until the world was plunged into war, was only seen as a man's job. It was partially opened on the 11th of March 1942, just three weeks after the murder of Deptford sex worker Peggy Richards. And although, during wartime, women were invaluable to our many industries, for those in the oldest profession, prostitutes remained invisible. As it was here, on Thursday the 19th of February 1942, the Peggy Richards would die. But being a potentially political powder keg between two allied nations, the British legal system would put into sharp contrast who they valued the most, the soldier or the sex worker. Peggy's death began as a simple exchange between two strangers. One who needed money, and the other who needed sex. Born in 1897, Joseph Ralph Bradley McKinstry was raised in Hull, one of the oldest neighbourhoods of Gatineau in the city of Quebec on the southeastern edge of Canada. Known to his pals as Buck, Joseph was stockily built like a swollen testicle, with dark wisps of thinning hair, beady eyes encircled by a set of silver-framed spectacles, and not a single tooth in his head. As adhering to the odd fashion of the 1920s, he had every tooth ripped out and replaced with a set of dentures to save on dentist fees. He worked in manual jobs and was often short on cash. He wasn't much of a looker, but he didn't struggle when it came to pulling a less than choosy lady. And although he wasn't everyone's cup of tea, some said he was smooth, whereas others called him a cocky twat. In 1932, he married, but raised in an era when women were seen as little more than an appendage to a man. She is never mentioned by name, only as the wife of Joseph McKinstry. Many said that he was a good father and a loving husband. Except morally, he had no qualms about spilling his seed in a slew of sex workers when he was miles from the woman that he claimed to love. With the outbreak of war, 42-year-old Joseph was conscripted into the machine gun enforcement unit of the Cameronian Highlanders of Ottawa. We know this as the press praised his heroics, but not his inability to keep his penis in his pants. Only his glorious military career 
wasn't exactly the stuff of legend. On the 10th of May 1940, Private Joseph McKinstry took part in Operation Fall. With Denmark having fallen to Nazi control, Britain feared that the same fate would soon befall the Nordic island nation of Iceland. So as the British do, they decided to invade and force it to become an Allied stronghold. Fully laden with guns, bombs and 746 Royal Marines setting sail for Reykjavik on board four warships, two destroyers, the Fearless and the Fortune, two cruisers, the Berwick and the Glasgow, as well as 4,000 Canadian soldiers, with a battalion of Cameronian Highlanders on board the Empress of Australia. The Allies were ready for war. But with their reconnaissance aircraft, a supermarine walrus flying too low over the port, the surprise was blown. By the time this heavily armed armada had arrived, the city's people had filled the dock, ready to greet these invaders with smiles and flowers. No shots were fired, no lives were lost, and the only upset was the citizens being asked to move back so our soldiers can get off the destroyer. Which politely, they did. Until April 1941, Iceland was garrisoned by 30,000 bored and lonely troops, some of whom regularly used prostitutes. So much so, the Icelandic census would record 255 known offspring who were conceived between invading soldiers and Icelandic sex workers. That year, Private McKinstry and the Cameronian Highlanders were redeployed to England, trained at Sturton outside Bradford, and later stationed at the Whitley Common Camp near Aldershot. And like any other soldier, given a few days' leave, he would head into London's West End for spirits, sex and sin. In every article, Joseph comes across as a husband, a father, and a soldier. Whereas Peggy wasn't even seen as a person, she was just a prostitute. What details were reported about Peggy were far from glowing. Peggy Richards was her street name, not that anyone cared. And being born Margaret MacArthur, near Wall's End in Northumberland, in and around 1910. She died aged 32. And yet many sources would list her age as 34, 38, 42, and even 48, but never younger. With 29 convictions for prostitution and theft, they said she lived a sinful life with an unnamed docker in poverty-strewn Deptford and as a sex worker who spread venereal disease for her own selfish need. She was described as ugly, stout, weather-beaten, easy, and drunk. And that is it. The life and times of Peggy Richards were summed up in the public's mind by five cruel words, which didn't portray her as a defenseless victim of murder, 
but as a criminal who deserved to die. Thursday the 19th of February 1942. With the Nazis advancing, most of Europe having fallen and the Allies in retreat, it was dark times as German bombers rained down death from the skies. One week earlier, the Blackout Ripper had been arrested for slaughtering four women just a few miles away. But it barely made the papers. Having fought with her lover on Valentine's Day, for almost a week, Peggy had slept in a slew of flea-bitten hotels, but only if her pistol punters could afford it. When they couldn't, she slept rough. Simply to exist, she sold her body for sex, each day wearing the same tatty clothes. A red crepe dress, a black wool cardigan, a fake fur coat, a pair of black stockings, and a red scarf wrapped around her head like a turban. In contrast, billeted at Whitley Common Camp, where every soldier was given good food, a clean bed, and a solid wage, Having sent a few dollars back to his wife and child in Canada, Joseph and his pals headed to Waterloo in search of drink and girls. As a private, his uniform consisted of blue trousers, a tunic and a beret, with a bright red pom-pom on top and bearing the badge of the Ottawa Cameronians. And as if it wasn't already obvious, which of these two people our governments valued more Joseph carried an army-issue gas mask, and whereas all Peggy had to protect her was a half-empty handbag. That evening, Joseph disembarked his train at Waterloo Station. His pal said, what about drinks and some women? Joseph agreed. They purchased a pack of prophylactics and sauntered to the nearest pub. At 7pm, a barman at the Hero of Waterloo pub at 108 Waterloo Road saw Peggy enter the saloon bar in the company of two Canadian soldiers, one of whom was later identified as Joseph McKinstry. At 8pm, the threesome headed to the Wellington Hotel, a pub directly opposite at 81 Waterloo Road where they drank until closing time at 10.30pm and purchased a few bottles of beer as off-sales. In his own words, Joseph said, I asked her to go out, which was common code for sex. And having stumbled into Alaska Street, a rotten unlit crevice of festering bins, scuttling rats and puddles of urine, under the roar as trains thundered overhead, he would later state, I had her in a doorway. He paid her five quid without quibble, and as his pal tottered back to the station, Joseph and Peggy headed towards Waterloo Bridge. That was the last time that Peggy Richards was seen alive. Three weeks from its opening to pedestrians, Waterloo Bridge was still under construction. With no traffic, 
no lights, and being in blackout, it was difficult to see a few feet ahead, let alone the black river below. Joseph would later admit to detectives, "We went for a walk. She was annoying me. I barked at her. Oh, shut up, you goddamn bitch!" And as we sat on the parapet of the bridge, I had her again. At 11:55 p.m., the storeman for Linton Co. and his colleagues, a lighterman, a night watchman, and a GPO engineer, heard the sound of arguing on the bridge. Exiting the storeroom by the South Shore door, they clambered up the concrete stairwell and spotted a lone man looking over the parapet. The storeman's torch illuminated the soldier's face and the word Canada on his tunic. The soldier, identified as Joseph, reassured them, "I'm all right, mate," stating his pals had already crossed the bridge. In his right hand was a beer bottle, as in his left hand he pushed an unseen object into his respirator case. Owing to obstructions on the bridge, the night watchman guided him to safety, and the soldier staggered north to Covent Garden. Unsure what had occurred, the storekeeper and his co-workers searched the unlit bridge by torchlight, finding only a scarf wrapped like a turban by the parapet, just two feet from where the soldier had stood. They shone their torches down into the black, muddy river below, but they saw and heard nothing. At 1:30 a.m. Joseph was seen at the YMCA canteen on platform 15 of Waterloo Station, trying to get a chit to stay at the Union Jack Club. Being short of a sixpence for a night's bunk, a fellow Canadian soldier spotted Joseph ferreting for silver in a lady's handbag, which matched Peggy's. He was smoking a Churchman cigarette, the type that Peggy smoked, and the soldier reported him. To the police, when asked by a constable, "Do you have anything in your possession which doesn't belong to you?" Joseph, who had given a false name, replied, "No." But when pressed, he grew petulant and threw the handbag onto the table, claiming that he had been with a woman drinking, stating, "She had hit me with a bag," and then ran off. The handbag contained ration books in the name of Peggy Richards. The bottom right lens of his spectacles were cracked. His dentures had broken in half, and across his forehead was a small swelling bruise. Unable to find a witness, including Peggy, to either confirm or deny his story, being a Canadian soldier, Private Joseph McKinstry was dealt with by the Provost Marshal of the Ottawa Cameronians. But he was released without charge. Nobody was worried about Peggy's safety, as no one had reported her missing. The next day, on Friday the twentieth of February, nineteen forty-two, at a little after six thirty a.m., 
as a slim crack of dawn light pierced through the dull grey clouds. Still unable to rationalise what he thought he had heard, the storekeeper returned to the bridge's parapet, where the woman's scarf was found, and the soldier was seen staring down. Alerting the police, at 9.35am, a patrol boat approached the southwest foreshore under the shadow of Waterloo Bridge. Being halfway between high and low tide, face down in the silty mud, a body lay motionless. Its fake fur coat was matted, its red crepe dress was sodden, and its pale legs were buckled. Hoisted up in a wicker cradle, a police surgeon gave this anonymous woman a cursory once-over and proclaimed, another suicide, I suppose, stating his belief that she'd been dead for four to seven days. And that was the end of Peggy's story. An unloved and unattractive prostitute who in a peak of alcoholic depression had jumped to her death. She was mourned by no one, buried in an unmarked grave, and like unwanted litter, easily forgotten. Or she would have been, had her autopsy not landed in the hands of a highly skilled pathologist, who was hailed as brilliant, inventive, fastidious, and more importantly, sympathetic. At 2.30pm, in Southwark Mortuary, the corpse of Peggy Richards was laid on a cold marble slab before Dr. Keith Simpson. Untouched, her pale face was daubed with red lipstick, cheap rouge and river mud. And although some of her garments had been disturbed by the natural flow of the ebb tide, one stocking had slipped off. But stranger still, her underwear was completely missing. The police surgeon's time of death was wildly out. Detecting a temperature of 47 degrees Fahrenheit in her internal organs, having compared this to 38 degrees in the mortuary and a river temperature of 31 degrees, Dr. Simpson estimated that she had died 14 hours earlier, about midnight, give or take. As for this being a suicide, within a few moments of seeing the injuries to this unfortunate woman, he had notified Superintendent Reese of the CID, this is not a suicide, this is a suspected murder. Across the middle of her back were jagged scuff marks, small uneven tears similar to the dotted holes in her red crepe dress and situated at a height of 3 feet and 6 inches from her feet, they exactly matched the hard surface of the parapet's wall. Being a sex worker, it was impossible to prove whether intercourse had taken place in the moments before her death, but a physical assault was very evident. Wiping away the mud, five fingertip bruises had encircled her neck, like a ghostly red hand, and the hyoid bone of her voice box 
was fractured. Her death had occurred just moments after she was strangled. And although her motionless body was found in the River Thames, she didn't drown. Tumbling backwards over the parapet, as Peggy's body plunged a minimum of 5.8 meters or 30 feet, the shallow muddy foreshore should have broken a fall, but it didn't. Owing to its design, directly below her was one of five solid piles used to support the bridge's span. Weighing roughly 12 stone, Peggy hit this 4.3 meter wide, reinforced concrete wall at a speed of roughly 38 miles an hour. Both thighs snapped, both knees broke, most of her ribs split, and her chest cavity was crushed. And although her head remained intact, there were extensive injuries to her internal organs. As she bounced off the rock-hard surface, built to survive the impacts of steel ships, and tumbled into the muddy foreshore. Alone, broken, and hopefully unconscious, Peggy died face down in the mud. Four days later, Dr. Simpson concluded it was murder. With an investigation in full swing, police swiftly questioned the stockman and his three colleagues of Linton Co., the barman at the Wellington and hero of Waterloo pubs, the Canadian soldier at the YMCA, the police constable of Waterloo Station, the provost marshal and Peggy's boyfriend. Having compiled a description of this unknown assailant, stocky, mid-forties, thinning hair and cocky, with cracked silver glasses, a bruised forehead and a broken set of dentures, wearing a blue uniform with a red pom-pom beret and the badge of the Cameronian Highlanders. Given a list of every soldier on leave in London that day, they tracked down Private Joseph McKinstry to his billet in Surrey. When he was found, he joked to his pals, Goodbye lads, I'll see you again, if they don't hang me. Only at that point, he hadn't been informed why he was to be interviewed by the police. Held in a detention cell at Bow Street Police Station, Joseph asked, Is your chief going to charge me with murder? The officer said, I don't know. You are merely detained whilst further inquiries are made. At which point, Joseph coldly stated, I'm not going to remember too much of what happened on that goddamn bridge until I hear what he knows and what the witnesses say. He gave a brief statement, stating, I had been with a girl, drinking. She hit me with her handbag as we came out of the pub. I got hold of it, she ran off, and I got left with it. But he denied assault and murder. With Peggy attacked on the 19th, found on the 20th, and her autopsy concluded by the 24th, Joseph was arrested and charged with her murder 
on Wednesday the 25th of February. In total, it took just six days. Given a wealth of evidence and witnesses, the trial should have been a mere formality. But with Joseph being a Canadian soldier and Peggy a British prostitute, only one life would be deemed worthy. On Wednesday the 15th of April 1942, Private Joseph McKinstry was tried at the Old Bailey for the murder of Margaret MacArthur, alias Peggy Richards. And he pleaded not guilty. The evidence was overwhelmingly weighed towards his guilt. The prosecution had her scarf, her handbag, her cigarettes and her silver coins, as well as several sightings of this very identifiable man wearing his military uniform. They had an admission, in his own words, that we drank and had sex twice. The last time being on the parapet of Waterloo Bridge, directly above where her body was found. A thorough autopsy had even proven that she had been strangled by a right-handed man, which Joseph was. And the police report even concluded, there was no doubt that Joseph McKinstry was responsible for the death of Peggy Richards. On paper, Joseph McKinstry was as good as dead, and the hangman's noose would await his neck. But from the start of the trial, the defense made it clear who was worthy and who was not. Arguing that her death was either an accident or a suicide, they did everything to discredit the autopsy. They disputed how Dr. Simpson could prove that she had died at midnight using only the temperature of her organs, a method which is standard practice today. They suggested that the fingertip bruises around her neck were actually crush injuries caused by logs or lumps of iron in the water, and that the blood in her liver showed that she had only survived for 10 minutes after the fall. The defense argued she could have lived for four more hours, which put a question mark over her time of death. The defense concluded, there is no evidence that Joseph McKinstry was with Peggy Richards after 10.30 p.m. And his presence with her on the bridge at midnight can only be inferred by his statements. And that being a sex worker, they suggested that she could easily have picked up someone else and that it was this unseen stranger who murdered Peggy. The jury agreed, and on Wednesday the 22nd of April 1942, Joseph was acquitted of Peggy's murder. The murder of sex workers, especially during wartime, was and still is seen as little more than an occupational hazard for a section of faceless nobodies slaughtered on the London streets at an often unreported rate. These women included Agnes Stafford, Mary MacLeod, Evelyn Hatton, Margaret Cook, Rita Green, Dora Friedman, Ginger Ray, 
Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Lowe and Doris Juni, to name but a few. Wartime juries were reluctant to convict any servicemen of a capital offence such as murder, especially Allied soldiers like Americans or Canadians, as this was likely to cause an unnecessary rift between our nations. We've seen it all before, with foreign soldiers convicted of murder, including Richard Rhodes Henley, Thomas Edward Croft, James Forbes McCallan, Henry Smith and George Brinnicum, who had their executions commuted, were acquitted, pardoned or given a woefully lenient sentence and returned home. Upon his acquittal, when police returned some of his personal property, Joseph asked, the money found in the dead woman's handbag, can I have it? In April 1942, Joseph returned to Canada as a free man to enjoy his life and his future. A few months later, he and his unnamed wife conceived a boy called Roland. But in January 1944, tragedy struck when a fire engulfed their home in Hull. His wife, their eight-year-old daughter and ten-month-old son all perished in the flames. And yet, sustaining just a few burns, miraculously, Joseph had escaped death again. And as with Peggy Richards, just like the law, fate would only deem his life worth saving. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. As always, if you enjoyed that episode, there's some non-essential stuff after the break. But before that, here's a very exclusive message from my good friends at Cult With No Name. Hello, this is Eric Stein from the band Cult With No Name and we provide all the music for the fabulous Murder Mile podcast. We thought you might like to know that our new album, our 10th, Nights in North Sentinel, comes out uh, on July the 30th on CD and digitally on August the 13th. The CD comes with a download code, not only for the vocal version of the album, but also for the instrumental versions of all the songs on the album. And if you order it directly, from our Bandcamp page, it will also be signed. You can also order it from all the usual places and of course download and stream from all the usual digital services. Okay, bye for now. If you enjoy listening to the Murder Mile theme tune, which I should point out is a track called Man in a Bag, available as track 5 on their album Air of the Dog, and also available as a ringtone in the Murder Mile eShop, and the track Win Some Lose Some, which is the end credits to Murder Mile that you can hear right now, as well as many other tracks used across this podcast, the full back catalogue of Cult With No Name 
is available via the link in the show notes. I own every album by Colt With No Name. I've been to practically all of their gigs and they are always excellent. Nights in North Senatal is their 10th album launching on the 30th of July and it's an intoxicating audio tour de force of joy, love and loss. I love it. As musicians, Eric and Johnny are not afraid to push the envelope, to roll out something original and different in each album. And best of all, they're really lovely people. To support local musicians like Cult With No Name, click on the link and have a listen. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Victoria McLaughlin, Tim Newbound, Jennifer Trebon, Jessica Cheeseman and Rob Richardson. I thank you all. And if, like me, you are currently dying in the heat, don't forget that a Murder Isle mug also makes beer and wine cooler and tastes great. Murder Isle was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening and sleep well. 1 size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In 4 weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose 1 to 2 pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it now. This heat can fuck off. Jesus. I mean it's hot outside, but it's even worse when you're trying to record this crap and you're stuck inside a steel shell and it's 33 degrees outside. And what let's see what the temperature is in here. It is 48 degrees. 48 fucking degrees Christ it's hot I'm going to have to open some windows cuz I'm dying and it's in oh crack open up oh man dying uh, can I open some more windows oh I'm not going I don't think I'm going to bother making myself a cup of tea cuz I am too bloody hot for this shit actually I might make a cup of tea cuz I'll do one I'm going to make one yeah bollocks let's do one 
A nice refreshing cup of tea in a murder mile mug. There we go. Oh lord, that was too hot. Too bloody hot. It's, you, you can't, in this kind of heat, you can't talk. It's, imp it's impossible to, I couldn't phrase my, get my mouth around words. I was just literally tripping. That's the third time I, I tried to record that bit that we've just, like that whole section, because I just couldn't get my mouth around words. It's like simple words and my mouth wasn't working. It's just, oh, your muscles don't work in this heat. And I'm I literally, I'm not wearing a lot. I'm, I'm just wearing pants. Lovely, just a bit, some, uh, some pants. I just, dying it's just oh and some bell end immediately behind me has a really annoying horn and every minute he goes dee, 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 dee. and it's just like fuck off you sad little wanker sorry if people don't like foul language but oh, just just oh just dying at the moment anyway uh welcome to extra mile a bloody hot extra mile jeez too hot melting i bought some ice the other day to, uh, and I, I put it in the coldest area in the boat, which is in the shower, because the shower is quite low, and they, therefore it's under the water le level. And I thought I'd put a big, big fat bag of packed ice in there to cool down some drinks. Had it in there for about not even an hour. Came back, it was just warm water. Everything, everything's too hot. Everything's melting like me. Oh, any cheese? I've got some cheeses. They, they, they go off within a day vegetables off within like by the end of the evening it's too hot too hot it can piss off i know the rest of the world is baking at the moment but for us whingy brits it's up to 33 34 degrees in places oh dear it was nice on sunday because i was out having a couple of couple of bevies that was all right i could handle that but it's not nice when you're stuck inside a boat doing work oh anyway i'm a day ahead which is good right what else is going on what else is going on oh uh, cake of the day um not not that exciting to be honest uh, sugared ring donut uh yeah they're all right they're a bit soft i, I still haven't found a, a ring donut that's good uh, I, I it's like the ones you get at the fairground they're nice but they're only nice for the first three minutes after that they're horrible uh cool, lummy let's pop that in there let's let that brew for a bit yeah, fairground hot dogs are delicious when they're hot and the sugar is just right. But as soon as they start to go a little bit cold, they go a bit bit crap really fast. Oh, I tried. Uh, Morrison's have started doing other ones. They do pink, I think a pink champagne donut. Haven't tried that yet. They do, uh, uh, I think it was a chocolate orange one. I tried that. It was all right. Custard ones are still the best. Still the best. Oh, dear. What else is going on in the world? Uh, looking forward to getting my new contact lenses soon, which are being crafted at the moment. Very good. So glad I went private. I finally got uh, an appointment for uh, the hospital through the 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 uh, not the private side, but the other side. And they finally contacted me after four months, and then said we got get you an appointment in two months. And I was like, well, that's six months. Whereas the private end, they've done me in six weeks, which has been great. And it wasn't that expensive. They tried me out with the new lenses. It's great. We got we got new special kind of lenses that have been designed. They're really exciting, and I popped me in my eye. And the one was really good. The other one wasn't as good, but uh, you know, I got a really good eye specialist, and he's really good. And he was like, he was like, let's let's put you on the new machine that we got. And we went around the corner, and we we scanned, did like multiple scans of my eyes, and then I went, uh, we'd look at my eyes. I'm like, what what's that? Where is that my eye? And he was like, yeah. 
And he was like, uh, I went, which bit? And he went, that bit. And I went, uh, what, the pointy bit? That can't be my eye. And he went, yep, that's your eye. My eyes are shaped like bullets, which is why it's hard to get lenses to fit me. But he's a, he's a really good good bloke, so he's doing a great job. Um, have I introduced this as Extra Mile? I can't remember. It's too hot. It's too hot, people. Uh, Extra Mile, uh, the unscripted, unedited bit, blah, 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 blah. blah. This, I, we're going to do a quiz in a bit. I'll give you some more details. I just have a blather until my tea has stewed. Uh, what else is going to final tours are happening for murder mile as long as covid doesn't act like a dickhead we've got the final tours until the end of the year so as a reminder if you do have vouchers uh i'm the only reason i'm really keeping these tours on is to let people who have vouchers kind of use them up uh so but i've emailed you all if you've got valid vouchers um so as mentioned you can either use tickets you can give them to our mate uh i can uh i i, I can convert the the money into a, a donation to st mungo's charity or i can give you the person who booked the tickets a refund or they can go towards a new tour which i'll be doing in the new year don't ask me about it now because i haven't prepped it and i'm not doing a, a guest list for that yet that will happen in the new year so don't ask any questions about it thank you very much uh, uh don't forget to join patreon if you can i've started a new thing on patreon called cake of the week i've rolled out a little video uh, to uh, on social media so people can look at it and then go Ooh, and i do a little video about cherry bakewells and i'll do that every week uh but not all of them are going to go public. It's just going to be um, a selection of them. Ooh, a little cold breeze has just snuck in. So let's grab my tea. Oh, uh, and then we'll do the quiz bit. Quiz bit. Da, 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 da. Too hot. Too hot. Oh. Hot, 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 hot. Ow. Let's put this in here. Oh. Right. Oh, lovely, jubbly, 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 jubbly. Right, let's do the quiz. Don't forget, as always, uh, details in the uh, things in the quiz might not appear uh, in the final episode because I might edit it out. This is a slightly longer episode, so I may, I may be editing stuff out. I don't know yet. Uh, so, okay, let's do this. Episode, what episode? Oh God, the heat has got to my head. I can't even concentrate. Question number one. What was Joseph's two middle names? Oh, burpees. It wasn't burpees, I'll tell you that much. Oh, sweating, sweating. And it wasn't sweating either. Question two. Uh, what, was Pe- uh, what was Peggy's real name? So as opposed to Peggy Richards, which was a street name, what was her real name? Uh, question three. I'm so hot. I'll probably balls up these questions anyway. Uh, question three. Name the two pubs that Joseph went to that evening. I almost read out the answers then by mistake. Question four. What colour was Peggy? What? Uh, four. Sorry. Uh, what colour was Peggy's dress? I missed out a big word there. Important word. Uh, what colour was Peggy's dress? Uh, question five. What did the storekeeper's three co-workers do as a job? That man with his bloody horns going off again. Sad little bastard. Just get a life. Um, uh, so what did uh, the storekeeper's three co-workers do as a job? There was three of them in total. Uh, question six. Uh, which police de- detective was in charge of the investigation? Question seven. 
what was the name of the serviceman's club that Joseph was trying to get a chit to stay in that night? Uh, question eight. Uh, Peggy lived in what part of South London? Question nine. Uh, Peggy's boyfriend did what as a job? And question ten. This is... It uh, could be a difficult one. I don't know. Uh, what street did Joseph and Peggy first have sex on? Ooh, and it's romantic. I went there filming some uh, 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 a video for patrons and subscribers the other day. And uh, yeah, it's very exciting. It's it's very romantic. It's the kind of place you think to yourself, oh, I'm going to have a bunk up down there. I'm feeling the urge. Uh, so uh, let's dive into some extra stuff. Uh, I thought I'd explain this beforehand. So, uh, as mentioned in the episode, in the handbag they found the ration books, which they said was in the name of Peggy Richards. Obviously, we know that Peggy Richards isn't her name, uh, but the likelihood is that she was, because uh, it's ration time, uh, wartime. A lot of people, if they could, they would use different names with their ration books. Therefore, they get multiple ration books. So, the likelihood is that she had ration books in her real name, which I won't mention, and in Peggy Richards as well. Um, uh, they said uh, it was said that uh, Joseph's bottom right lens of his spectacles were cracked. Uh, this may have occurred uh, as a result of kind of an altercation between him and Peggy. We're not too sure. Uh, his dentures, a set of dentures were found and they were broken in half. Now, uh, when he was with the, the provost marshal, uh, these were in his pocket uh, so we don't know whether he'd taken his dentures out, whether these were a spare set of dentures, whether they'd fallen out in, in an altercation with Peggy or whether he was carrying them with him for whatever reason, maybe to get them fixed. We don't know. Uh, so I've kind of put those in there. There's there's a lot of kind of small details that uh, are kind of uncertain. Oh, I'm looking at those donuts and I, oh, I'm definitely going to have one in a bit. I'm going to go down the shops later on and treat myself to something nice because I deserve it. Maybe something cold, like, oh, nice ice cream. Mm. OK, so this murder happened Thursday, the 19th of February, 1942, uh, which was literally just days after the arrest of uh, the Blackout Ripper. Uh, and and uh, when you look at it as well, his uh, Joseph's trial happened at the Old Bailey roughly around the same time as the Blackout Ripper as well. I think it was 24th of April was the uh, Blackout Ripper's one. I could be wrong. I uh, don't care. Don't write in because I don't care. Um, I know someone right now was like, oh, I'm going to find it and I'm going to email him. No, I don't care. Really don't care. Uh, find out. Have a look. Listen to an earlier episode. You can enjoy yourself. I don't care. I don't care. This is don't, some people message me about this and go, oh, you said an extra mile da, 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 this, but it's actually this. I don't care. That's why this is in the unedited bit. I don't care if there's mistakes in this bit. I don't care. I don't give a shit. This is the unedited bit. If there's mistakes, good. That's the way it should be. Uh, so uh, online there will be some videos of the, the foreshore where the body was found. Um, it wasn't well listed exactly where um, uh, where Peggy's body was found. Uh, but I, I went out to the bridge and I, I had all the documentation with me and I kind of uh, found the kind of the the concrete pile that was there and exactly where on the parapet she would have been i'll I'll post some pictures online uh if you go if you sign up to the patron there's loads of pictures to help you kind of uh look at this carefully but uh, uh it's interesting like the uh uh the parapet has kind of uh like uh 
it's it's a stone there's a stony structure on it but then there's kind of a steel structure above it and uh you can kind of see where she would have been standing where he would have pushed her against the railing uh it wasn't quite clear on there whether all of the not all of the parapet was complete at that point that's what they were kind of still working on the road wasn't quite ready for cars to go through but they were just about to get to the point where they would make it safe so pedestrians could kind of cross the bridge otherwise you've kind of go go to the other bridges which is a real pain in the ass uh so yeah uh the bridge was opened on the 11th of march 1942 so again that's that's only about three weeks after the murder as well um what else is that it's interesting you'll see some pictures on there the original bridge was built in 1817 designed by john rennie as mentioned it was a granite bridge with nine arches originally known as the strand bridge but uh, after it had been there for about 60 years they noticed it had some really serious structural defects in the 1920s it was closed and they decided to build a new kind of uh, steel structure and what they originally did was they put the steel structure kind of to the side and then they built it then they put it on top of the bridge and then slowly they got rid of uh, the old strand bridge and then put in place the new Waterloo bridge so at one point there were two bridges then there was one on top of the other and then they entirely got rid of it they even had to deviate the tramway the uh, the Kingsway tramway that we've mentioned many times they had to re-angle the tramway to make sure it could come over Waterloo bridge but the tramway no is uh, kind of defunct now um peggy richards uh real name uh, uh, uh her first uh criminal offense happened when she was about 18 years old based on her cro number they said she had 29 convictions for prostitution and larceny which is theft she came from uh northumberland in the northeast of england she was 32 at the time uh she uh where's this where's this uh she lived at uh 23 castell house in church street in deptford which is still there today it's kind of a bit of a block of flats to be honest we don't really know that much about her to be honest uh the press really couldn't be that bothered they they all made sure that they uh had a slurp of tea they all made sure that they mentioned that she was a sex worker um many of them got her name wrong many didn't realize that peggy rob peggy richards wasn't her name i i keep calling her peggy roberts because many of the articles call her peggy roberts although her name's peggy richards but as we know it's not her real name uh so yeah uh, as always you know if it was someone famous or something like that they would get all the details details uh correct but because she's a nobody and especially because she's a sex worker they couldn't be asked thank you coot i entirely agree um i just wanted to dive into some extra details about uh dr keith simpson so originally i wasn't going to do this case uh because there wasn't really a huge amount of details about there and the stuff that was in the press as mentioned is complete bollocks because they can't be asked to do the research they would rather just churn shit out and then hope that people believe that it's true or you know or if they get as press do the way they get it all entirely wrong they will spend weeks like ripping someone apart and then when they realize they made a mistake they'll put on page 17 of an article in the corner they'll go oh we wrote some articles about this person and uh uh it turns out they were not entirely accurate and they'll, they'll hide it in a corner so you won't see it. So hopefully you won't realise that you're, you're being force-fed bullshit by people who can't be asked to do their job properly. Anyway, luckily, 
I, I've got loads of books by different pathologists and people like that. And I was going through Dr. Keith Simpson's book and I was like, ah, there it is. And he did, there was actually a really nice bit written uh, by him and uh, mostly by his assistant who kept a lot of the details and notes. And that's really good. So um, I'm going to die if, if my brain's a bit tired. So I'll, I'll balls this up. But there's a. I thought it was interesting how even though Dr. Keith Simpson had basically had really defined everything down, if you look at it, you know, he'd pinned down exactly when she died to uh, within half an hour of, he said within half an hour of about midnight, which is right. She, she apparently, uh, she was attacked. Uh, they heard the screams at 11.55 and he said that she'd kind of, she would have survived maybe five to 10 minutes. So it's in and around midnight. And he said she died within half an hour of kind of midnight, which is, yeah, pretty good and he got that by working out the temperature of her body no one was really doing that at that point it was kind of keith simpson who was kind of everyone was doing the um the analysis of how how kind of you know the, the the forehead shrinks and the skin shrinks and things like that they were kind of measuring the body that way but he was the one who was going right uh it's actually the temperature of the body that it cools at a consistent rate therefore if you know the temperature of where the body was and where it is now you can and how long they've been there you can kind of work out Oh, uh, roughly when they would have died. And he, uh, as you can see there, is pretty accurate. Uh, so I'm going to read some of the stuff from his book uh, taken from when he was uh, giving evidence at the trial. Uh, so let's... Uh, um, so the prosecution... No, the defence... I'm going to get this wrong. The defence... So uh, the defence for Joseph said... Uh, is not what you have told the jury about the lapse of time between the strangling and the crushing injuries merely conjecture on your part. Uh, the counsel asked me with a fine show of scorn. Um, he replied, it is my opinion, but not my conjecture. Ah, oh, you fucking wanker. So someone's going past too fast in their boat. They don't give a shit. They're on their phone and my boat is just banged against the wall and now my tears spill everywhere. And that little wanker with a stupid fucking hat on doesn't give a shit oh people are pissing me off today really pissing me off you know oh. the irony is i guarantee you he'll moor up down there someone will go past him too fast and he'll be the one out going oh mate slow the fuck down what the fuck are you doing he was wearing one of those twat hats as well bastard Right, where did I get to? Uh, Dr. Keith Simpson said, It is my opinion, but not my conjecture. It is an opinion based on my findings. I like it because he keeps fighting his corner on this. Uh, uh, the defence said, So Joseph's defence said, You formed that opinion about the time of death after you heard of the charge, I suggest. Uh, Dr. Simpson said, No, my opinions were expressed at the time I made the post-mortem examination. Which is... Uh, good because he's actually in he even says in court you know his post-mortem examination notes were there and they were signed and dated exactly when it was um uh they were arguing about the discoloration of her skin and the, the uh the defense said might not the post-mortem discoloration have affected uh been affected after four hours uh Dr. Simpson said, uh, no, this is an easy one. Post-mortem of the vessels after death. Uh, the bruising... Uh, uh, are, uh, the bru uh, bruising in the vessels can, can only kind of really occur immediately after death. Uh, this was the point where... Um, 
The defence also said uh, they were trying to get across the idea that uh, Peggy hadn't been strangled, that actually she'd kind of landed, even though her face wasn't hurt at all. They said that she'd probably landed on her neck or as she landed in the water, she was being sloshed around. It was all the the heavy logs and lumps of wood that had injured her. And they said, have you seen the picture Uh, showing a picture of the riverbed? Uh, He agreed. He said, I'd actually been there myself. Uh, When you were looking at the foreshore, did you see any heavy logs or lumps of wood? Uh, He said, yes, wondering what was coming on. And they said, did you see any iron? And he said, no, but I could have imagined it. Um... uh, that the flow of the tide comes heavily at this point, uh, according to them. And he said, I have no knowledge of that, as the, as, as the flow of water is not my field of expertise, uh, quite rightly. Uh, so they keep going back to this. They keep going back and forth saying, Do you know, she wasn't strangled, even though the marks around her neck are clearly are finger marks. That's why he says that they are fingertip bruises. Uh, they say no it's like she was rolling around in the water uh, and it was it was uh, lumps of wood that were kind of hitting her neck Uh, except she he says um, I should then expect to see signs of drowning uh, as the body would have been alive at the time to show the bruising because obviously the body needs to be alive when bruising happens because it's the circulation of the blood whereas if a body is dead there would be no bruising because you know blood isn't circulating anymore once the heart stops the blood can't circulate uh uh so they were saying well suppose that the woman's hot body was out of the water so they're saying the defense was saying her body was rolling around in the water even though she was face down but her head was above the water it's just bollocks this goes on for absolutely freaking ages and I mean, he's he's doing a great job of kind of backing it up and finding fa- finding faults with everything they're saying, but they're finding any reason literally to say no. You know, what they want to say is that she didn't die at twelve o'clock, which was when you know he would be uh, Joseph would be found in or near that location. They're trying to say that maybe she died at four o'clock, you know, or a couple of hours later. Which by that point they could already say, you know, he'd been. Um, he was already uh, either made his way back to his billets or he was in the uh, the hostel that night, the, the the club, whose name I will not mention because that's oh, I've got hip burpy hiccups. Why is that? Oh, some Burks walking along the canal going, oh mate, oh mate, 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 mate. Listen, they're right next to each other, and they go, oh mate, 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 mate. Never understand it. People walk along the canal and they feel the need to shout at each other. It's like, you're right next to each other, you dicks. Oh, canal life. Um, what else we got? Yeah, no, as mentioned in here as well, they also said, you know, he'd looked at the... Uh, her liver was crushed, so he had a look at the amount of blood that was in her liver and he determined that, you know, as mentioned, that the, the kind of the, uh, the heart stops pumping, therefore uh, blood doesn't go in and out of the liver. So he looked at the amount of blood in the liver and he said, uh, based on uh, the fact that her liver was crushed, she would have only survived about five to ten minutes after she kind of fallen off the parapet, hit the concrete... Uh, pile and then landed in the water face down so you know hopefully she was unconscious at that point but we don't know um uh but he determined that she'd uh only been alive for five or ten minutes he said maximum 15 uh that she would have survived uh they suggested that 
as mentioned before, that she would have been able to have survived three or four hours, although they didn't provide a doctor who was able to back that up. So a lot of the time, the defence are basically just going on conjecture, which is absolutely baffling. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, they keep going on about the fact that uh, these aren't bruise marks to her neck, that she'd, you know, she'd be injured by something by hitting and falling. Uh but he quite rightly says if this would have happened, she would have had injuries uh, to her jaw, given the given the way that she'd fallen. But she got no injuries to her jaw. It was just her chest. So um, what else have we got? It's weird that the, the defense keep going on suggesting that everything that he's talking about is hypothetical, but almost everything they're doing is hypothetical as well. Uh, which is what I think what makes this uh, case really fascinating is that, do you know, there's a wealth of evidence to back up the fact that Joseph is responsible for her murder, but everything is being deflected in a way to kind of say, do you know, we need to find a way to not make him guilty because, you know, A, he's a soldier and we need kind of soldiers fighting. B, this could be slightly embarrassing between ourselves and the Canadians. That's what it seems to be focused on. And I, I I think a big part of this is, as as I've said before, if this would have been the murder of a doctor or a celebrity or, or, or especially a politician, core Lummy, there would have been a big old hoo-ha about that. But given the fact that she's a sex worker, they're just like, let's try and sweep this under the carpet. You know, the police did a great, except that initial police surgeon who did a shit job. And you know what? There'll be great people in the world, but there'll be shit people who are shit at their job. Uh, the police did a great job. You know, they pretty much wrapped this up in six days. You know, they, they were able to see exactly what it was. They found all of the pieces of evidence to tie it together. But the problem was, this is what the defence said, that all of the evidence leads up to the fact of they were seen together at about half past ten. But no one saw Peggy after that except Joseph. The guys on the bridge, do you know, who worked for Lintico, they didn't see Peggy. They didn't see a woman there. Um, Joseph's pal went to the train station. So apparently, according to him, he didn't see her after 10.30. We don't know where they went. This is There's a bit of a gap here between 10.30 when the pub shut and between 11.55 when the, the guys working for Lintico on uh, Waterloo Bridge heard a scream or an eye, well, they heard an argument what they said was a kind of a oh, I can't remember the exact words they used. It wasn't an argument. It was kind of a a to do, probably something like that. They they heard a kind of a, a bit of a ruction going on. They went up, but they didn't see a woman. So no one has seen Peggy except Joseph between ten thirty. Well, allegedly between ten thirty and the time of her death just before midnight. So what they did for that hour, we don't know. We really don't know. Uh, they only seem to have like a, a bottle of beer left. Maybe they went to another pub. We there doesn't seem to be another one that we can find uh as mentioned uh oh another slurp of tea yeah mm, uh. <coughs> oh cough not covid uh, as mentioned uh a lot of uh sex workers murdered during the the interwar years and the post-war years many of whom we've kind of covered on murder mile before um so we've got agnes stafford in hoban uh, uh 19th of may 1942 so just a few months later that might be coming to murder mile i'll need to look into that mary mcleod in stepney on the 25th of july 1942 thomas bragg uh, was charged but found not guilty by order of the judge I might be looking into that one. That could be interesting. Evelyn Hatton on the 13th of December 1944 in Mayfair. Uh, Eileen Cook, 
5th of February 1945 over in Bethnal Green. That's in the East. I won't be. Margaret Cook, who we've covered, I think that was episode 13, uh, over in Covent, Covent Garden, Carnaby Street. That's still unsolved. That was the one where the, uh, uh, again, Canadian soldier, um, uh, 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 he's in his 90s now, whether he's still alive, we don't know, uh, on his deathbed, allegedly diagnosed with cancer, saying that he murdered her in the, in the 1940s. Uh, but we don't know any more after that, unfortunately. So, but I've covered that case. Rita Green, alias Black Rita, 8th of September 1947, still unsolved. That's on, uh, I think it's on Rupert Street, uh, uh, just south of Shaspi Avenue. I'm ho- I've, I'm still hoping to cover that case, but again, there's not much about it, and the case file is held uh, because uh, it was believed that Rita Green, alias Black Rita, was uh, a police informer. Um, I've had some people get in touch with me saying that they're related to Rita Green, but every time I come back to them with uh, the the real name of Rita Green, uh, they don't seem to reply anymore, which is fascinating. Uh, Dora Friedman, I've mentioned her many times before. Russian Dora, as she's known. 5th of September 1948, over in Covent Garden on Longacre. Again, that's unsolved as well. Kathleen Higgins, over in Regent's Park. 12th of March 1949. Uh... A 77-year-old active prostitute. Not the oldest one. If you go over to Holland, there's a, a pair of sisters who are in their 80s, I believe, who are still both active sex workers. Uh, also, as mentioned, we've got Evelyn Oakley, Margaret Florence Lowe and Doris Shune from the Blackout Ripper. Uh, and that trial is going on at the same time as this one as well. Also, as mentioned in this episode, we've got quite a few soldiers who are acquitted or given a lesser charge for murder. So... Uh, Richard Rhodes Henley, if you go back to the the the, the guy who robbed the pornography store uh, on crutches, uh, he was given the death penalty, but ultimately that was removed and he was sent back to Canada. Lovely. So he came over here, committed a murder. Uh, he was about to be uh, executed, but then obviously the British and Canadian governments went, oh, this is slightly embarrassing. Oh, dear. We don't want a Canadian murdered on our soil. I tell you what, we'll send him back to Canada. Bye-bye. Which is lovely. I'm sure uh, Big Al's family appreciated that. Uh, the man who murdered the unfortunate Mr Johnson, if you go back to that episode, Private Thomas Edward Croft, found guilty of murder. And being brutal, uh, it was a brutal and unprovoked attack. If you remember, that was in a dance hall. Uh, the prosecution asked for the death, death penalty, but instead he was dishonorably discharged from military service. He had to forfeit his pay and he was sent back to America, uh, where it is said he served. Uh, he was confined for hard labour for the rest of his life. But was he? I can't find any more details about that. I don't care anyway, to be honest. Fuck him. Uh, James Forbes McCallum has mentioned this was the pub in uh, the one that was in Covent Garden. If you if you remember that from a little while ago where they had those weird screen doors on it. He put his gun through the screen door. It sprung back and it, you know, it uh, hit him in the arm and it hit the, it killed the barman as well. Again, he was found guilty. Uh, again, his execution was commuted. Again, he was returned home and he uh, was able to live the rest of his life fascinating we also have uh, as a different one on there um the murder of william raven if you go back to that one that was the kind of the gay rape one that went on uh i did that with a kind of a sherlock holmes twist again canadian soldiers henry smith and george brinnicum were charged with murder 
but with no evidence of premeditation, Henry was acquitted and sent back to Canada. George was found guilty of manslaughter and served three years at Wormwood, Wormwood Scrubs Prison uh, before he was sent back to Canada as well. So there seems to be a lot of... Um, yeah, there's a lot of violence going on, a lot of... Um, a lot of soldiers it's weird because there's um it's like gordon frederick cummings uh is tried of four murders at, at that point and you know british soldier therefore they convict him they convict him and he is executed uh there are other canadian soldiers who are kind of uh happen happening around this time who have been uh charged charged with various murders don't forget these are these are people who've seen horrific things they've got guns on them things about to, things are likely to go a little bit haywire you know um but yeah it's, it's weird times it's really weird times uh let's okay oh i think i overtalked that one uh let's go back and do the quiz uh questions and then we'll wrap this up and then i i will open some more windows and because i can't do this because i'm using the power on my laptop when i get rid of this bloody microphone i can put in a little fan that i've got and i can cool myself down dying unfortunately i only have one usb port available at the moment so i can't put my fan it also the fan makes too much noise i don't, don't email me with silent fans i think people keep emailing me with very very nice and kind of people but people go oh oh you mentioned a silent fan here's this one i go yeah but i live on a boat and i don't have mains power it's like i have to keep saying this to everyone everyone goes oh you should buy this and i go i don't have mains power and they go ah oh. oh okay oh oh do you know it's 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 difficult it's difficult a different life being on a boat you've got to rethink everything that you're doing and that's why a lot of people give up because they're just not you can't do it anymore uh because you sit here and i was on a conference call last night and i sweated to death because all of my power has been used for the laptop and it was going it was drew it was going on for ages too long it was going on for a lot longer than it should have been and i was dying and i, I had a little fan next to me and i was like sod it i'm gonna plug it into something and shove it into my face i was dying oh anyway let's do the quiz answer to the quiz let's get ready what was joseph's two middle names it was ralph and bradley oh lovely uh what was peggy's real name it was Margaret MacArthur. Question three. Name the two pubs that Joseph went to that night. It was the Wellington and the Hero of Waterloo. Uh, the Hero of Waterloo is now defunct. It was uh, 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 torn down in the 1960s. It used to be uh it, where the where the train line just before it goes into waterloo station and it was like kind of on the ring road so they kind of demolished it but the wellington hotel is still there today i've I've taken some video and some pictures available on patreon if, if you subscribe to that you'll see all the videos um question four what was what color was peggy's dress it was red uh question five what did the storekeeper's three co-workers do as a job? Uh, one was a lighterman, uh, which meant that he was a tugboat man. That's a man with a tugboat, not a man who tugs on a boat. Um, a night watchman uh, who worked for the bridge itself. Uh, and a GPO engineer, which is a general post office engineer. Uh, as in the 1940s, the post office not just delivered post, but they were also um, our main telecommunications contractor. Uh, 
question six. Which police detective was in charge of the investigation? His name was Superintendent Reese. Question seven. What was the name of the serviceman's club Joseph was trying to get a chit to stay in that night? It was the Union Jack Club. Uh, and that was also the same club that Richard Rhodes Henley, the uh, Canadian masturbator, uh, was staying at as well. Um, question eight. Peggy lived in what part of South London? Deptford. Question nine. Peggy's boyfriend did what as a job? He was a dock worker. And final one, could be difficult, I don't know. Uh, what street did Joseph and Peggy first have sex on? That was Alaska Street. Well done if you got all those right. <sighs> Although well done if you got at least three right, because uh, some of those are quite difficult. Anyway, that's cool. That was a, that's a lot to edit. Right. Oh, how much power have I got in my battery? Oh, it's th oh God. The day has just whizzed by. Right, I'm going to whiz through this and start editing this. And I hopefully I'll be done by Friday. And I'd love to. I'm going to try and take Saturday off. That'd be lovely. Ooh. And then I think next week I'm meeting up with some friends in a pub. <gasps> friends in a pub. Oh, I did that last week. I did. I did. I met a mate for his 50th birthday. Then I met old Beardy Face. Who uh, um, uh, met, I was meant to meet on the Wednesday, but then we moved it to Sunday, and then we had a couple of good beers. And that was lovely. Nice to meet people safely and socially distanced. Anyway, that's that. Hope you all enjoyed that. Don't forget to check out the uh, new album by Cult with No Name, available called uh, North Thingy. Oh, I've forgotten the name of it already. Oh, Michael. It is, I'm looking at, uh, uh, Nights in North Sen Sentinel. I knew it was called North something. Uh, and don't forget, if you can, buy a ticket to CrimeCon, and I will see you there. Have yourself a good week. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.